0: This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the app for arts and culture. Created by Bloomberg Philanthropies, Bloomberg Connects lets you access museums, galleries and cultural spaces around the world on demand. Download the app to access digital guides and explore a variety of content. Hello, I'm Ben Luke and welcome to A Brush With, the podcast where I talk to artists about their cultural experiences and influences, the artists that have inspired them across their career, the writers and poets they draw on, the music they listen to and respond to in their work, and the cultural epiphanies that have changed their lives. And in this episode, it's A Brush With, Ellen Gallagher, one of the most dynamic and endlessly fascinating artists working today. Her main media are painting and drawing, but Ellen's also worked in sculpture and in collaboration with Edgar Klein in film and animation. She was born in Providence, Rhode Island in 1965 to an Irish mother and a father born in the United States to parents from the Cape Verde archipelago off the west coast of Africa. She now lives in Rotterdam in the Netherlands. Her father's ancestry in particular has been crucial in defining much of the territory of Ellen's work, as you'll hear in this conversation. Much of her practice relates to the history, culture, language and mythologies of the Black Diaspora. After she'd studied at Oberlin College in Ohio, the School of the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston and the Skougan School of Painting and Sculpture in Maine, Ellen developed a distinctive take on abstraction and minimalist art. Her work may have looked spare, almost like Agnes Martin, from a distance, but up close her paintings were formed from hundreds of drawn or painted lips, wigs or eyeballs, which Ellen referred to as the disembodied ephemera of minstrelsy, the racist blackface entertainment common in the US from the century onwards. She achieved acclaim for these early paintings and has since developed several similarly powerful and arresting bodies of work. In the early 2000s she began taking adverts and feature articles from black orientated magazines like Ebony and transforming them with yellow and white plasticine in brilliantly inventive ways. Many of the adverts were for wigs and in Ellen's hands these hairpieces become a platform for wonderfully imaginative sculptural reliefs made with the plasticine, riffing on the adverts and imagery and in inscribed with witty, sardonic or politically incisive forms from light bulbs, rockets and question marks to bananas and fire hoses. They're presented in vast grids made up in some cases of more than 300 individual images. Another series began in the early 2000s but still ongoing, sums up the formal and conceptual balance of Ellen's work. It's called Watery Ecstatic and consists of wonderfully poetic, sometimes delicate, often hugely powerful oceanic imagery, realised in watercolour, ink and oil, with cut paper and collage. In some works in the series, those disembodied eyes from the Minstrelsy series appear again, and here they relate to an Afrofuturist myth at the core of the Watery Ecstatic series. This is the myth of Drexia, developed by the Detroit techno band of the same name. Drexia is essentially a black Atlantist at the bottom of the Atlantic, a society formed by the pregnant enslaved women who were thrown or threw themselves from slave ships during the middle passage from Africa to the Americas. As you'll hear, that series and works relating to it, such as a recent body of work called Ecstatic Draft of Fishes, draw on a wealth of cultural references in addition to Detroit techno, from historic art to Herman Melville's novels and novellas, to marine biology and Ellen's own family story. They also call on an array of techniques. Ellen's paintings are endlessly intriguing in terms of their formal invention, their colour, texture and tone. There is, indeed, an ebb and flow within her language, her forms and language shifting, sometimes reappearing, yet constantly evolving. In the Ecstatic Draft of Fish's series, for instance, alongside Novel Elements, she uses the penmanship paper, or handwriting paper, that was the basis of her earliest paintings from which her compositions grew, and it's with this that I began our conversation. How did she discover the penmanship paper, and why did she use it as the ground for what's become an extraordinarily rich body of work over three decades?
1: My father's neighborhood is called Fox Point. It's in Providence, Rhode Island. It's sort of on the edge of where Rhode Island School of Design and Brown University are. It's been really gentrified recently. Well, over this sort of period of 30 years, we've really seen it change. But what happened in the 60s is that uh, the Robert Moses designed highway infrastructure came in to the East Course uh, around 95 and I-95, and that community was decimated already. And you started to see the effects through my childhood. So by the 70s, what had been a a really intense community that was bound to the sea, you know, they came over as whalers. um, And so they sort of settled into the port of Providence, Rhode Island, where I'm from. You know, it was just an incredible neighborhood with lots of boys clubs and community groups. And um, it was really uh, a really strong uh, environment that slowly we saw um, get erased. And certainly by the time Ronald Reagan came to power, you know, he started closing down all the pools. He emptied out the pools. And, you know, my cousin had been a lifeguard. I learned to swim in, in the neighborhood pools. And, then, and the pools around Providence, Rhode Island, were a big part of my life. They were, you know, these sort of turquoise rectangles in the middle of these urban environments that were just really wild. You know, we were just just wild and screaming and And it was, you know, they were just really these beautiful spaces that you see now there were all these emptied pools by the the 80s, by the mid-80s. So I was walking in my father's neighborhood in around, I think this would have been somewhere between 1990 and 1991. And so then, again, there were the empty pools. The neighborhood had been quite emptied out already, slowly becoming gentrified now by the students because the community had left it, this emptiness. So this community is first cut off by the Robert Moses Highway from the sea and also from the heart of Providence. Um, And my father used to actually walk my brother and I across the highway to get into the city. And, you know, uh, because he said it was our right, they had really taken this from us. Um, And in, in one of these playgrounds, I found a piece of paper that was folded up. And it was penmanship paper. I unfolded it, and it said in this really beautiful block handwriting, we are a drug-free school. Have a nice day. And do you remember that was Nancy Reagan's thing, you know, just say no. And so there was this just say no kind of message, this bland message with this happy face. And it just was so poignant to me. And then the sort of the flesh of the paper, I think I liked that it was somehow living, that it was it had already darkened it over the time it had been on the ground. And it was so carefully folded. So I took it home with me and I thought about it. And it somehow I ended up buying a bunch of penmanship paper and I began working with them into the canvas. And I think I, I made my first penmanship paper painting between 91 and 92.
0: And one of the things about it, as you, you talk about that sort of ageing, the way it changes, it seems to me that that's a consistent concern in all your work, that in a sense all the materials as well as the forms are somehow in flux, are mutable.
1: Or they're unstable, you know, they're they're living. And also that, um, you know, paper is really interesting because edges of paper, you know, they age from the corners in. So I also think that's really interesting, the way they age. And yeah and it's true the materials there plasticine as, a, as well as something that is never fixed you know i could certainly cast those forms and i have done that when i've made special editions i've i've made something out of plasticine and then cast it in a more permanent rubber but i i really love that there is something in the work that is is fighting against this idea of fixedness you know
0: at the opening of your Tate Modern retrospective in 2013 there is one of your works which is quite singular in your practice but it was presented almost like a manifesto in in the sense it was on its own and it was right at the start of the show and it is an image which is a 1928 photograph of Matisse and a model in this oriental interior. Can you tell me something about that work, why you took it and of course why you adapted and how you adapted it?
1: Right. Well, the work was made for an exhibition I did at the Freud Museum. I very much wanted to be in conversation not just with the Freud Museum, which is in St. John's Wood in in London. I wanted to be in conversation with the other women artists that have made exhibitions there. It's been a really important site. That, that was part of the conversation as well uh, with with those artists, and I was thinking about what Edward Said had written about freud 's couch and and the odalisque, and you know his couch is so uh, present in that space in his it 's basically the Freud Museum is his office and his home, where he lived for this last year, where he wrote Moses and Ma- monotheism, and it 's where he, he and his family came to escape the Nazis in, uh, from Vienna. So one of the things he took with him, as well as his practice, and, and I, I was really moved to find in his drawer of his desk, he had business cards made up so that he was actually, even in his last year of life and in a new city, he was, he was in business, you know, that he was not giving up, that he was really ready to go. And I, I found that really moving, actually. And as well, he brought uh, Abu Simbal. Um, That was also really important to him. And that either hung over his couch sometimes or over his mantle. And so I wanted to address this relationship to uh, the Odalisque and and also uh, psychoanalysis and, and this sort of harem and this idea of you know, his his notorious phrase that the woman's mind is this dark continent. Just before I had had my show at the Freud Museum, there was a great exhibition in London of Matisse and his fabrics. Do you remember that? And then it went yes. to the Met. And I saw it in both places. And I was really moved by that exhibition. And so this idea to bring Matisse... And his fabrics, which always are really important to me, and and also um, that texture in his work and his mm-hmm. odalisques, and to kind of make that really apparent, make that really more of a lucid link between that and what uh, Freud was proposing in some ways, and and so I I sort of beheaded Matisse's model and and put myself uh, my my head over her body, which I loved her body, so I left her body. It's this really big. Strong body. I left her body and I put my head. I shifted the gaze, but I tried to keep her intensity because her original look is really intense. And so we've worked really hard to keep that. But I'm then looking at the artist or the uh, analyst. And it's really funny. And then uh, Freud's head is on Matisse's body. And if you look closely, we did our best I could do to blend it, but you can really see that it's Freud's head. On Matisse's body, and that Freud is looking kind of nervous and looking down at his notes. And but Matisse, if you look at Matisse's hands, you think, "Oh, he knew that woman's body." There's a shift between the hand and the head that I think is really interesting in, in that that piece. And this was my first sort of big uh, solo exhibition retrospective mid career retrospective and they always want a lot of information and you feel very peeled and I also wanted to make a kind of play on that um, where they have these kind of timelines you know I wasn't being offered that because I didn't have that kind of timeline you know that uh, that Matisse or somebody like that you would go see or Cezanne but I wanted to make a kind of play on that and so I thought well let's make a projection let's say this is who Ellen Gallagher is you know right when you come into the space instead of a big text you will get this projection.
0: I wanted to ask about about humour and the work, because obviously a lot of your work is dealing with themes which are devastating and, and terrible. But at the same time, humour is a crucial part of your work and, and, in fact, different modes of address. Can you say something about how hard it is to find that right kind of approach to subjects? Because I, I imagine it must be a difficult balance to strike.
1: Right. There is a kind of humor that is really not a joke in a way. It's not a joke at all in terms of also in terms of its getability or its lucidity. A joke has to work in a different kind of way. I think the humor in my work, it's working towards a kind of agency. It's a kind of way to get over to another space when sometimes like, you know, you're not going to make that space in the time frame of the work or the time frame of your life. I think music works like that as well. You know, certainly that can actually transport you to another kind of sense of being. And so for me, humor can do that. And it's not about releasing the terrible, it's really about traversing it.
0: Let's move on to the questions that we ask all our guests now. So who was the first artist whose work you loved?
1: It's not that I'm embarrassed to say this, but it's a little bit uh, long winded, but I kind of have to get it to you in this way because I think it's important Um, because I lived with it in my dorm room in African Heritage House at Oberlin College in Ohio. That's why this piece I want to speak to you about is important to me. And, And it's also about the way I came to this piece. There was a program started by a woman named Ellen Johnson who was really important to Oberlin College um, and and certainly to my life. She was a librarian and a a professor, um, really radical woman, actually. Um, And she also had a great influence at the school's art museum, the Allen Art Museum. And she had this idea, uh, she wanted students, teachers, and even the wider community, cooks, cleaners, everybody in the community to have access to great art. And she had this idea that you had to live with the art of your time. This was really important. So she started what she called this art rental program. You could just come and show your school ID at the beginning of the semester. She had like a, all of these artists prints or works on paper and she felt everyone could have access to it by showing their ID like a library card. You would show your ID and then you could take away anything from this collection that she had convinced the school to give her money to go to New York and buy. And she was already hooked up in, in New York. So she had Goya, Matisse, Picasso, Moreau, Toulouse-Lautrec, Via Selmans, Ava Hess, Warhol, uh, Faith Ringgold, uh, Richter, Carrie Mae Weems. It was incredible collection of work. And it, I just remember it was on these tables. And of course, you know, I was a teenager. Um, I, I went um, a little bit early to school and I showed my ID like everyone else. I was super excited. But of course, the art history students got there first. And I wouldn't have even really known what a Picasso was, but I thought that's what I was going to get. And, you know, I felt really like embarrassed that I didn't know what things were. But what called to me was actually a work by Keith Herring. And it was Untitled Number One, 1982. And it's a lithograph, black ink on on white ground. And it's two dogs standing upright on two legs, laughing and barking. And you feel the sound in the work. And one of the dogs holds a TV over his shoulder. On screen, on the TV screen, is a dog on all fours. And the other standing upright dog is penetrating a man who is bent over between the two dogs. And it's a really magical work. You know, I think it's about images and seeing. I felt it was about revolution. I I thought it might be a picture of Gil Scott Herron's The Revolution Will Not Be Televised. And again, this was Ronald Reagan had recently come to power. And even though I was a teenager, it was the first time that I felt as an adult, I could see the changes or the implications of complicity, you know, even on that college campus um, and in my country. And I still remember that feeling of being like so proud and that it was mine. It hung over my bed and, you know, we had these little tiny dorm rooms, you know, not much bigger than your bed. So I would open my door And people would stand. So it was just incredible because people would stand and we would sort of riff on what it was about, you know, and and then, you know, I don't know if it was about Gil Scott Heron or but maybe, you know, and and then, you know, that led me to um, other artists like Rommel Z, who became really important to me. But I love the idea, you know, speaking of projection again, that you know, actually, uh, Keith Herring begins his work, you know, working uh, in the kind of negative spaces in advertisements that haven't been sold. You get these black spaces. Um, he would actually do this sort of white or silver in the negative spaces of an unsold advertisement in subways and, and that kind of projection. I find that really beautiful. And I do think there is a kind of sound in his work. You know, really, when I say the dogs are laughing and barking, I'm sure of it. You know, so there's all kinds of sounds that uh, are you feel them, like his characters make have a kind of sound element to them.
0: How lovely. Which historical artist do you turn to the most?
1: Diego Velazquez. You know, it's interesting. I didn't go to the Prado until I was much older. And I remember that when I had one of my first interviews, Peter Schedule called me up after he uh, saw my show at Mary Boone, and he, he was very kind. But I just remember he said, I'm really curious what it will be like when you travel and you go to the Prado. Because clearly I had not been yet. Well, he asked me. He, he asked if I had been, and he, I think he spoke about his daughter, and, and he uh, you knew that he was excited to look at things with her. And I went for the first time, or maybe it was the second time I went, it was the Velázquez uh, retrospective. So it was incredible to see it there with all their holdings and the loans. And of course they have so much bargaining power so they can really get any loan they want. And they have so many anyway because of the royal court. But it was that infant Felipe Prospero from 1659, the child that is about to die and that he knows will die. And I think they both are dying. I think it's at the end of Velázquez's life and the child will die later that year as well. And the child is painted with um, so thin, you can see like the curtains behind him coming through this really pale flesh. And then he has all these little bells on him, you know, to kind of keep him alive, to keep the spirits away. It's a really incredible picture and also the, the portraits of girls in wigs, those royal children, uh, adolescent girls that will then, the heartbreak of that, you know, they're these sewn in wigs into them and they're, and that, you know, they think they're going to be marrying this boy they've been promised to and then he dies and then they have to marry his father. You know, and that's a lot to take in, I think, if you're 14 and you feel that and, and the way he's negotiating being a court painter and, and the detail, of course, is incredible.
0: I'm so pleased that you said about that the portrait of Felipe Prospero. It's a heartbreaking painting, isn't it?
1: It's a really scary, scary painting. You know, it's just like this sorrow to come, and and it's living. You're living with it right there.
0: And surely one of the most tender portraits of a dog in, in oh, history yes. of painting.
1: Yeah, because yeah, who, he's in the place of one of the dwarfs, right? He knows everything. He, yeah, he sees what's coming. Yeah. yeah. I, I was
0: going to ask you about in terms of. Historic works. The fact that in, in, in this current show, which is at House and Worth as we speak, there are these fang karyatid figures, these Congo figurines. I wanted to ask you about those and had they long been sort of percolating in your mind as, as an image to use or is it a recent discovery?
1: No, no. I, well, that's the great thing about being in New York uh, during the 90s, you know, to have access to the Met. And there was one sculpture in particular, uh, Master of the Cascades. And that is in a work I did in, uh, I want to say 2000, um, oh. Dance, You Monster. And it's a diptych. And and I blew it up really large. And uh, yeah, Master of the Cascades uh, from the Congo. And I think I was really struck by the fact that this was something, this was an object used for ritual or for coiffure, you know, again, a kind of ritual that, it, and that I was, reduced to seeing it in a two-dimensional plane because it was in a vitrine. So I was thinking about vitrines and what vitrines do to sculptural form. And anyway, that I was thinking about that. But then I was also thinking about like that idea of form and motion has been always really important to my work. And and thinking about that when something is caught and kind of held in a kind of two-dimensional space. This idea of sculpture, Coming back into two-dimensional form, or sculpture, or dance, moving through form to another form is really important to me. And actually, the title of the exhibition at Hauser uh, and is "Ecstatic Draft of Fishes," which comes from the Rubens' "Miraculous Draft of Fishes." And the and the version I'm referring to is actually in Cologne, and that's an oil sketch that I saw at the Boymans in Rotterdam, Boymans Museum, and. Um, Right before it closed for like seven years, like now it's closed for seven years for architecture again, like what the Dutch <laughs> seem to do to all their museums. Like let's just close for a decade and ruin everybody's life so we can make some ridiculous like extension. But anyway, um, but there was this lovely exhibition of Rubens' oil sketches. So this is an oil sketch, and this particular version of the miraculous draft of fishes is really interesting because unlike the one in London, which is the, uh, a more full image, the ecstatic draft is singular and it's really creepy. It's not a bunch of beautiful fish you would eat. It looks like a sea creature that is more like an omen than feeding you so it's like it's really exciting to see him working through these different sort of proposals and they're radically different you know and that you can do that in a painting or uh, in a way that I think you couldn't do in a novel I mean I don't think you would write a novel and it would be so completely different it's absolutely different. Painting when you have like this sea creature that is is really like a bad omen rather than a, you know a fulfilling and Christ isn't in that image as well so it's like after um, but it, it's also interesting because uh, he uses sculptural form to, to be the apostles he he uses uh, the the figures in the boat are actually from um, uh, sculptures that he was looking at when he was in Villa Medici in Rome. So it's really interesting that he's already transferring sculpture into painting. And so I thought that's so interesting to do that with the the Fang work, to sort of bring that back into the 2D space of painting.
0: I wanted to ask about the, the sort of problematics of referencing works of the past and how interesting it is in the context of your work, because we've already talked about Matisse in the context of uh, Odalisque, but also your consistent references to Milevich's Black Square. and this utter revelation that I hadn't known about until I was reading about your work which is that beneath the black square there's a racist joke and this prompted a body of your work can you explain more about that
1: well it's not sure I mean we will never get to the bottom of that you know so we can say you said it perfectly this has appeared has been revealed but we know that already before we even get to that point Um, that for more than, you know, decades, that, that painting has been, again, the paint surface is unstable. And so we've seen a kind of figurative form underneath that is already has a relationship to, you know, something that Toni Morrison calls this Africanist presence in Western literature. And so I think there's an Africanist presence in Western painting as well. And so clearly, already I was thinking about that in terms of what's underneath. This uh, zero sum is actually built over uh, something, you know. So that's, that's clear, even before this, this, this thing surfaced. And, and so it's, of course, now there's some idea that perhaps it's not in his handwriting. That hasn't been proven yet. We don't know if it's Malevich's handwriting. We do know it's there. That, that's what we know for sure, is that it's there, but who did it? And I don't know that we will be allowed to find that out, you know, so. But that idea, I thought, what does it mean for, for that racist joke was already there before Malievich makes the painting, of course, because of Alphonse Allais, and, and, and that was also a joke in a sense that that was something that Turner faced, that idea of abstraction, you know, that like the, the impossibility of abstraction. So it's a joke a little bit about that. Um, and then in my hands, it, when when that impossibility of abstraction is, you know, that's when you speak about humor. It's this kind of humor that is, well, indeed. Yeah. It is impossible.
0: <laughs> and so you made a body of work called "Negroes Battling in a Cave" as, in response to this information, essentially.
1: Yeah, that would then be uh, a series. I wanted it to be a series and in motion, and in some ways to reference back to, of course, the you know the eclipse of the you know what I consider the earliest American abstraction, which is um, blackface minstrelsy—the eclipse of the African body into American blackface and and you know Ralph Ellison references this of course as well in in the invisible man and so so these kind of stories are moving in the work and i think for me it doesn't just exist in the title and it's the same thing with humor and as opposed to a joke it exists in this kind of threshold this space of the subject that we can share together and that that is where there's a kind of hope in the work if there could be one is that can we get to a point where we can travel these forms together and create this space where we can be in this shared space around some of this threshold
0: Um, Let's talk about contemporary artists. Uh, Which contemporary artists do you most admire?
1: Well, I mean, interestingly, speaking of projection, I think... You know, I have to think of the Dutch artist Stanley Brown is super important to me um, and him as a kind of direct line out of Mondrian in his measurements and his refusals. You know, he's a kind of parallel of David Hammond's, maybe he would be a little bit older, an artist that refused to be photographed as he matured as an artist. And he refuses a kind of catalog entry and a kind of mention of of him. In a way, He's he's kind of... Erasing himself to project himself forward in the future, but basically his, he's somebody who who comes to Amsterdam from Suriname, and has spent his whole career measuring his body, you know, and as if to say, you know, you know, so so everything is about steps and his own position you know in in the world and and also the way that he is He was super important and in and and an inventor of conceptualism of the 70s In fact in Darby English's incredible book among others uh, that he did really excavating the the MoMA story Super incredible he he has these notes where they are considering Stanley Brown someone suggests in a meeting I don't know how Darby got these meeting notes somebody suggests that Stanley Brown should be given a solo exhibition because he's such an important um, uh, developer of conceptualism. And he's referred to as an African-American permanently displaced in Europe. I thought that was really, so that's how that's how his identity was phrased in this. Uh, I, I thought that was really interesting. So, I mean, I don't know what he thought about that and he didn't get the exhibition anyway, but. Yeah,
0: Yeah, that would be another story. Yeah. And of
1: course, connected to that, I was really blown away by the Adrian Piper exhibition at the MoMA that Christophe Cherix did that uh, I got to go in. I never do that. Ask a favor. But I got to go in like a couple hours before. The, the crowd came because once everybody came in, it would, it was really hard to unpack that exhibition. But I got, I got to be just with a friend in that space uh, together and we could read and really get into it. And her mappings of her studio, I'd never made a link between her and Stanley Brown before and I got it. And thinking about them coming out of also Theosophy and Mondrian was really interesting to think about.
0: That is really interesting. And it's interesting the point that you make about scale and about reading, because your work is very dense and it, it requires time and energy. You know, Yes, there are spectacular effects that can be seen from across a room, but also... That's nice
1: you say that, because I think they don't have a lot of wall power in my works. I'm installing in Arnhem now, and, and I was saying Bonaventure had this white-cut paperwork. He put it really directly under... A stained glass window and maybe we'll keep it I don't know but I I thought like I don't know I felt like don't worry it doesn't have any wall power it's okay (laughs) but but uh I maybe that's not the thing to say to your curator but (laughs)
0: <laughs> but I, I, I would. That's like a thing in it. New
1: York. Like people really, when you you hear, they're like, it's got real wall power. It seems to be like like people like Roberta Smith and Jerry Saltz really love things that have wall power. And they talk about that. You know, I think these people work really hard and go and see a lot of things. And I really think, though, you started to hear that phrase a lot from the 2000s. And it really has to do with like things getting full and speeded up. And yeah, I don't think it's the only way to go, but I, I understand it, it could be valid. I don't know.
0: <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think it's interesting. There's a really an interesting thought in terms of your work, because I would say your work does have willpower. And I would say that probably the key thing is that if your work does have wall power, it has something more. And yours, of course, does. So tell me about striking that balance, because, of course, your work does require an engagement close up. You you cannot gauge the work without really moving in close.
1: Yeah. And I think it also does not reproduce. And i that's something I think about a lot, and um, I, I certainly worry about it. And I also, I'm joking, and I, I also worry about the wall power thing, for sure. But, you know, I also think of forms that I really love that also don't reproduce. Like, you know, when I was a student, you still had a go-go music was really big coming out of D.C., and that music never moved into, like, the world stage the way hip-hop or did, you know, or... And I think that has to do with the fact that you can't record it and you can't translate it because if it's like 20 guys on a stage, like all playing the drums, it's hard to make a recording of it. It's something I guess you have to be there. And I think that can be a really exciting thing to that's something I have thought about, especially during this time when I've been not able to go to museums and see things. I've missed that. And I think like to to actually be able to go into spaces again, this is what I'm really looking forward to. But also that I know I have to get my energy right for it again, right?
0: What works do you have pinned to the studio wall? Or do you do you not have anything pinned to the studio wall?
1: I have things that stay on the wall and then I have things that shift on the wall. But one piece that um, stays on the wall and that I did get to see in person, and that's why it's on the wall, is uh, Hugo van der Goes' diptych with the fall of man and the lamentations from 1475. And that's for the devil, the picture of the devil in that. It's not, you know, this like, grotesque it's really creepy it's really scary because it's about curiosity it's just like creepy it's just turning its head and and looking at them and it's just so disturbing and the color is so disturbing and it's you know it's miniature but it's it's just a really frightening piece and it's a concept of the devil as you know as just like a disturbance in the plane.
0: This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the app for arts and culture. The app offers access to over 30 cultural institutions through a single download, with new partners being added every month. Among the digital guides available on the app is one dedicated to the Drawing Centre in New York, which held Alan Gallagher's exhibition Preserve in 2002. As well as a series of mixed-media drawings taken from advertisements in mid-century black culture magazines, the show included the artist's first major three-dimensional work, a large white-painted construction resembling a jungle gym. If you download Bloomberg Connects, you can find out about the current exhibitions at the Drawing Centre and hear the curatorial team talk about selected artworks. The digital guide also provides educational resources, including drawing activities. For more content and to explore guides to all the partnering institutions, download Bloomberg Connects today. You can find the app at BloombergConnects.org. It's also available to download from the App Store and Google Play. Which museum or gallery do you visit most frequently?
1: So that would be the Prado now, but that's like as an adult, not young. Yeah, before that, a really important site to me would have been Trinity Square Repertory Theatre in Providence, Rhode Island and because I was an usher there. I was there before Anne Bogart, and I was there during Anne Bogart and after, and I was very exciting to see her come, and she wrecked the place with her great work. Like, it suddenly became empty. The actors remained the same core group, and she brought in Maria Arín Fornes, and so this was what I got to see as like a, you know, I don't know, was I 14 or 15 or something? And this was incredible, and I got to see the town not be able to handle her so that was really important and then I went to art school and of course the Museum of Fine Arts was super important to me that I went to that school but uh I think that the Prado is the most important the museum I need to go to and and I schedule that in to go to that yeah
0: which cultural experience changed the way you see the world
1: so in between Oberlin and uh, the museum school was uh, a little bit of time where I, I tried to figure out what I wanted to do. And one of the things I did that was incredible and, and led me to art school was I did something called Sea Semester out of Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and it's Sea Education Association. And it has sort of, you know, there's, there's the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute is there. So it's really they have this rich Um, library and also um, scientists to pull from. So you study celestial navigation in Woods Hole, Massachusetts and sailing. And then we all met. So we were a group of like 20 people all around. I don't know, by then I was 19 or 20. I think I turned 20 then. And we sailed. uh, We did this loop around the Caribbean. and, And this was incredible for me. One to move from one island to another. And also what we were doing, I mean, we were on a sailboat. So we we say a research vessel, but it was really, we were sailing that thing. And it was incredible and a lot of work and we were split into three groups. So um, we were really all really responsible for moving ourselves from one place to another. And my project that I developed at the last minute, you know, not really being uh, a scientist or or studying uh, really science, I saw a scientist at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute give a slide talk, and he showed these images of pteropods, and they were gorgeous. They were, they just were these two footed sails that were moving through the water columns. And so I thought, that's it. That's my project. But I hadn't really done the work and didn't realize that they were microscopic or not really any bigger than your fingernails. So it turned out to be people thought, well, you're hardcore. That's intense. I mean, so I so I, I didn't realize what I'd set myself up for. But it meant, you know, sort of. uh doing these net toes through the water columns because they are diurnal migrators. So they're moving through the water columns. And my idea was that I was going to, because they move through, they have some mobility, I was going to use them to map out the the kind of Caribbean. So I was going to map where they were and create this overview. Because that was also what struck me being on the this boat for all this time um, was like that the sea was not one thing that it was made up of all these different bodies of water. And and that really struck me. And also when we would land in different places, the other thing that nobody really talked about, but for me, it was really intense. We landed from being in this New England, pretty much white environment, we went to the Caribbean, and we we didn't land in like the fancy yachty harbors. We landed in the working harbors of these places. So we landed in the working harbors of Martinique. And at that time, you could walk through the neighborhood. For me, we landed in a kind of black universe. And I was blown away. I was just blown away, we would walk through this neighborhood and into Fort de France. There is a little port in Fort de France, but that's like if you have a lot of money, you can sail in there. And um, in Fort de France, it was just incredible being in, and, and the students were fighting for the right to take the baccalauréat. We walked into a student protest which was incredible. And then also the uh, Victor Sulcer Library. So these things just blew me away. And and so in a way, it was the beginning of another thinking about America or the Americas and, and the Caribbean and, and and led me to really to be really fascinated by writers like M. A. César and Edwige Danticat, And, you know, it was so strange. Like Jamaica was English and Ceiba was Dutch and Martinique was French. It was just very very disturbing i mean i I remember just it was really very powerful and um moved me and and then you know right from that going into art school and it was physically moving and psychically moving in every way to to this program
0: it is extraordinary isn't it that there was this moment at which the study of biology and the study of culture and the study of history sort of converged so sort of palpably in your experience
1: for my experience, that was really true. I don't know what other people were, were thinking about when they were, but that's what happened to me, of course. Um, I was really struck by that. And I'm really grateful for the experience. You know, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful. And it was scary to do because I didn't know what it would lead to. You know, I didn't know, you know, it seemed a little bit frivolous to take this time off and, and do this, you know. And it was a lot of an investment of of time and my student loans and, um, but, but I did it, and I'm really glad I did it.
0: Uh, let's talk about literature. You've already referred to um, Amy César there. Which writers or poets do you return to the most?
1: Recently, you know, Edwige Dandicott, always returning to her. Um, Dewbreaker, you know, is the title of her work. You know, I love that she starts off, you know, it's a series of stories that are wound together. And like Maurice Condé, she has this way of bringing scent into her work. You know, Maurice Condé, it's it's often flowers. Because you know, scent like sound isn't something you can contain. You know, so it's something that is beyond any kind of, you know, kind of like instability in my work. Or, you know, it's it's something that is not fixed in a way. And you it can't be contained in a nation. You can't draw a line and say, well this smell will end here. You know, so you smell when you're approaching land, you know, you smell the heat from the land and when you approach it from the water this and you hear and so you but you smell even before you hear I think yeah it's strange um but um the way that you know dewbreaker starts off with this idea of palimpsest in her work and that she's trying to make a portrait of her father she's an artist trying to make a sculpture of her father and she can't she can't seem to find it and the whole series of stories is about her finding this picture that she kind of couldn't really face or and these ways that like these images like uh, that exist you know a poster in uh, you know the way that Haiti moves into Brooklyn and there's a poster for a wanted man but it's all vague and and torn and and so there's this idea of palimpsest again and and that the community is looking for who were the dewbreaker you know who were these torturers and 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 then it, she finds you know that in a sense that we are the dewbreaker. You know that we we in that idea of that there is a kind of usness to the violence as well. That I think uh, that that and that idea of recovery that has to be done in a kind of webbing.
0: And, and tell me about Amy Sazal. Is there was there a particular body of work? Because it, it, often in, in connection with your work, the Ode à la Guinée is is mentioned. Is this as important as, as it sounds?
1: I think besides Ode à la Guine, it's it's also the idea that he does get to go study but he would have been an exceptional case right he and senghor meet in paris at the sorbonne um and this is really interesting to me right now actually uh because they meet at the sorbonne and they uh, form together this idea of, of negritude you know and of course glissant fights back against that about a more caribbean specificity but still this idea that they kind of had the right to be at the sorbonne as exceptional Negroes, but they went beyond that. And they forged something together to say, no, that's not actually the role we intend to take. You know, we're going to take something back with us and we are going to keep ourselves together. Thank you, Paris, for introducing us to each other. You know what I mean? So so they—they they, this is what they did. And they brought this back. And this is such an important part of critical race theory right now. And it has been for my uh, whole education, What what they did in terms of pan-Africanism and and negritude, and, and um, creolite, and this idea that you could choose your own nation within your nation. Even that, I, you know, I'm talking to you about this Keith Haring, uh lithograph in African Heritage House. That was a big deal for me. I chose to live there, and I chose that work. It was the beginnings of, like, you know, a kid... Sort of making, like every kid has to do, become like grown up and make some choices about how you want to be in the world. And their example and what they formed, we are still in that. And so it's incredible to me that Macron has recently come out so publicly. He's basically said there's like an invasion or an infiltration in French culture by American academics, and he's specifically attacking black feminist theory, of course. It's incredible to me that he's, he's blind to like the fact that we are, are so bound together and the importance of black francophone cultural uh, discourse in America is it, something that you know you see like how terrified um, American government has been historically of, of Haiti and uh, of Cuba, that our nation is afraid of the Caribbean, and and what black independence and black sovereign space could be. And so I I think it's really interesting uh, when I hear Macron say that, and I'm living in Rotterdam, makes me so angry. And it's also he's blind to his own uh, nation, in a a sense, he's blind to the beauty of what happened in, in France, in francophone diaspora.
0: One of the things, hearing you say that and talking about those, those figures is about the different kinds of influence that writers, poets, musicians, artists can exert over other artists in the sense that some have a kind of moral influence or, or ethical influence, but then others have very formal connections and, and things like that. And are you conscious of, of that kind of, in a way, a kind of constellation of different forms of influence that is around you?
1: Yeah, you know, I don't know if I'm conscious of it, to be honest, and I give myself a lot of time to think about it. You know, for example, you know, speaking of, of uh, Senghor and César, I mean, for example, in a more contemporary Drexia, you know, when I first discovered uh, their music would have been their 1997 manifesto, but I was soon to be moving to be in Berlin for a year. You know, I, I began showing in uh, in England, you know, I was in Catherine de Zager's exhibition, um, Inside the Visible, that went to Whitechapel uh, from the ICA Boston, um, which is where she met me and saw my work. And so, The idea of not just showing in the UK, but then what would it mean to make an exhibition in Berlin with my work and my content? And could I travel my abstraction? Well, Drexia coming out of Detroit and being so huge in, in Germany, in Berlin, and not just Berlin, all over Europe, and also Derek May and Jeff Mills. I mean, to this day, I have walked into a nightclub a few years ago in in uh, Rotterdam, and Jeff Mills was playing, and it was like call and response. The, the audience knew him so well. He could like, he held them, he controlled them. They knew what was coming. They, they knew the work so well, they were moving to it. It was so incredible. You know, this like cheer went up when he would shift to something else or it was really wild. And, you know, you would see their posters around. So you knew that, oh, there's, they're really here, you know, in this space. And and that's been something like more than in the visual art world in the Netherlands. There's a kind of music world here that is, is incredible, that is, is on a whole other level than, than what is happening if you would go to a museum or a gallery here, for example, in terms of like culture and, and contemporary culture and, and diasporic form. But, you know, Drexia, they really created a space for me to imagine myself in abstraction and in the world. That it could travel
0: we'll talk about music again in a minute, but i can't let us get away from literature without asking you about Moby Dick. Moby Dick is a work that continually comes up in connection with your work you 've made works directly in response to it, haven't you? Can you tell me about that journey that you've been on with that book, really?
1: Yeah, well, I have to say that I did read Moby Dick in school, so I had a really great teacher in school, like the one class i, I, I you know Blossom Kirschenbaum was incredible, and we read the Bluest Eye. Bernard uh, Malamud, yeah. You know, so we read Moby Dick and I can't say that, that I really got it, but we read also Benito Serino. And this was incredible for me. So it's not just Moby Dick for me. That's really important, of course. But for me, it was um, Benito Serino and The Confidence Man where I, w- I found I was shocked. I I found him to be a shocking um race writer and nobody nobody was saying that you know and and he was so nuanced it was like he his words jumped across all these years right into my mind and and he was especially being in new england i mean i, I was you know from a working class background and i went to quaker school for a bit and there's this kind of waspy liberalism that's very condescending that used to creep me out and was really, really hard on, especially on, like, my mom, when she would bring me to school because she's very working-class Irish, and so she would be kind of checked, you know, by the by the school she was struggling to send me to. But I was fabulous because I was, you know, I, I was a black student. I, I always really remember this class... It was sort of like blackness was its own class. And then there was this other kind of class hierarchy. And Melville seemed to address that. When he talks about, you know, in, in Benito Sereno, like all of his narratives, an unstable narrator, he's taking us in and he doesn't know what's going on. And, and, and so there, there's been an, a slave insurrection and they are actually pretending to still be enslaved and there's a moment where the captain tries to reach out to the narrator to say, oh, help, but his very faithful manservant decides this is the time he needs to have a shave and there's this scene where he puts the, f- the flag across his master's body and carefully shaves his neck and says don't move sir i would hate for you to get cut it'd be so horrible <laughs> and he's carefully shaving this and it's so sensual and and the narrator is thinking oh my god he's being shaved with a flag across his chest. Um, and and that they're you know, that this, this captain is clearly decrepit, but his manservant is so loyal and so tender. And it, you know, slowly it's revealed. And it's because he's so condescending. He's, he's actually speaking to the abolitionists that, you know, that their refusal of black sovereign space in a way, you know, and he's, he's speaking to that power. I mean, you know, we don't really look to Melville for like a kind of, and we know he's not writing about, you know, when he says about manhood, he means really manhood. He doesn't mean if women or not. But still, he's, you know, I, he's incredible. And The Confidence Man is basically, the whole story is in blackface. And, and the, that's the whole question is, you know, it takes place on this steamship and there are all these different narratives that happen each chapter is its own narrative and it's its own guise and what you never realize is are there these many crooks on this steamship on america or is it one person in disguise the whole time so there are all these kind of disguises and stories you know he's really somebody who dresses the rot at the core of america of the promise of america and, and and i think for that he's really silenced and he's silenced on purpose as a race writer i think
0: Um, so let's return to music. Let's talk about Drexia because it's at the heart of your work, this Afrofuturist, but it comes from from techno as opposed to jazz like Sun Ra. So tell us about that about that myth and, and what it means to you in terms of your work.
1: An origin myth could be at an unfixed site, at the site of violence, as opposed to an origin myth in terms of um, being not the plantation and neither sort of a return to, you know, Marcus Garvey return. You know, it's not this kind of return to Africa. It's not, it's not Liberia, nor is it the plantation. And so for me, Draxia offered this proposal that we, we needed to think about this site, that it's actually this space uh, of the sea, that, that the change happens in captivity. I mean, it's such an eloquent way to speak of this sort of terrible site as a kind of sublime. Which is always about a kind of terror, right? I mean, the sublime is always uh, about a decay and a terror, and so so this this idea of this sea sublime um, that that they come up with, of course, it's super important to me. But and and the sound as well that it's like it can be so analog and 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 so melodic on the one hand, you know, or it can just be beep beep beep, you know, it can can really like such a wide ranging. You know, it's the same thing like with craftwork, you know, when you think of the melodics in craftwork and you think, why can they get away with this? Like, why? You know, wait, you can see like this clearly has roots in German romanticism. Right. You know, and why is like craftwork? Um, OK, of course. Yes. I mean, you know, I went to the Tate and I got to see that. That was very moving. And then somebody like Anselm Kiefer so. You know, it's, it's interesting to think about, like, I mean, these are the things I think about. Like, why is that something that musically we allow these kind of traverses through, you know, a kind of fascist landscape? And then it's much more difficult visually, you know, but musically, it's I don't know why that is. It's something I think about. You know, I think about that as an art problem that is interesting to me. I think in some ways this idea of Drexia as a... I understand this idea of a kind of a militarized zone beneath the sea. And and I, I get it. But for me, I think in some ways I move away from Drexia in a sense that I'm really all about the womb. What I'm, I'm really struck by with the mythos is this idea of, of the, the grief. And so, you know, I, I always sort of euphemistically say women that went overboard, because it, there's also some agency in that, also an agency in death. And, and I think there is a kind of that loss of motherhood or that loss of your child that, that in some ways, I think the militarized zone of Drexia, the band, the manifesto, for me, it in some ways denies the grief of the mother And and I want to stay with the mother. So, um, you know, there's divergences, but of course they're super influential as well.
0: Yeah. And, and those caryatid figures that we were talking about earlier on, do you see those as, as symbols of those women or is that too neat a way of reading? No,
1: it? I do. I mean, obviously, I, I mean, they're female. I've chosen that. It's very clear. I mean, it's not really they're not voluptuous in terms of, you know, there's this kind of breast form. And, and actually, I did change them a bit because the actual uh, sculpture is breastfeeding twins. I did try to I thought like oh that's a bit much. So <laughs> for me to transfer that. So um she's she's actually breastfeeding so that's why the breasts are really present. And I I think of them also as yeah as as a kind of female generative form. But I I don't see them only as mother. I see them also as as a, the child, the the weaving of a kind of of offspring, you know.
0: Those underwater spaces—they're often extremely beautiful. You talk about the sublime and terror, and the idea that the underwater space is a space of beauty, and yet at the same time, in in those works where you where you're talking about the the sort of the the bottom of the sea, where there are animals that feed on the bones of whales it's a space of both terror and beauty at the same time isn't it
1: exactly and this idea of you know we have no access to it you know we are able to travel in machines down into submersibles you feel that we don't belong there and we don't have access to it and that's really magical to me like that's such deep space you know
0: um... in terms of Music that you listen to as you work. Would you listen to techno? Would Drexia be on your playlist?
1: You know, Alice Coltrane just has new music out that is devotional music. She made in the 80s with just with an organ. That her son has just released. Ravi Coltrane released. It's incredible. So I am listening to that, and it's driving everybody crazy because I'm listening to it over. That's what I do. I listen to things over and over again, and. um and then I, you know, I switch it up. And uh, so right now I'm I'm definitely in that rant. Um, but, you know, I listen to the BBC. I listen to uh, Stuart Marconi's Freak Zone. So I, I love that. And I think when I'm really working, I, I sometimes like to listen to that, just put that on and see where and just be surprised. But it's funny because something must be changing in me because I used to, Whenever that would come on, I would say, oh, get that off. That that guy is taking advantage of us. But now I, I, I felt like I had more space for what he's doing and I'm, I'm, I enjoy him.
0: Can there be too much content audio wise while you're working, especially because your work is, is so complicated?
1: My studio is right in the port of Rotterdam. So when the tugboats come back and tie up, there's like this bunk. You feel the the whole building move. And right now it's raining on the roof and the roof is metal. So I, I love all these sounds. Yeah, and just like there's people working on the docks and, and that you're really in a port. So sometimes I, want to, I don't wanna hear that and sometimes that's all I wanna hear.
0: Is there a particular discipline in your daily working life that you see as an essential ritual?
1: I guess I clean my studio sometimes. When I clean my studio, it's not a daily ritual but I do, uh, I do it myself. I sort of go through the mediums and the colors and, and sometimes like, just doing that will decide like what I'll use in a new work. And then I ride my bike back and forth to the studio that, and, and I have to ride through the port. My house is also along the port, so I ride through the port and back and forth each day.
0: And that sort of in th- important thinking space, as it were.
1: I think so. Yeah, it is. It is. It's and it's. Uh, yeah, because I know it, and it's a kind of a bike trail the whole way. So there's no real like I'm not going to get run over by a truck or something. You know, I'm. I can really just be in my head and, and ride. Yeah.
0: If you could live with one work of art, what would it be?
1: Well, I mean, just to be in keeping with this conversation, I suppose I should say I would live with uh, Jan Mostert's Portrait of an African Man. It's an incredible painting of, of a man that's in the Rijksmuseum. And they don't have a huge collection of Flemish primitives. They're more sort of focused on the golden era. So that painting is incredible because... You know, it's just quiet. It's, 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 you know, it's not a really large painting. And it is, I don't know how to look at it. I realized. I thought, wow, you know, there's so much, you know, white noise around that figure. And he's this young, beautiful figure. He's outside of caricature. So it's, you know, when it's, it's a Flemish primitive, he was apparently in the court and he's a bodyguard. And so he's armed, he's wealthy. He's black, he's very beautiful. And I I showed that to the uh, historian Robin Kelly, and Robin said something so beautiful to me. He said, you know, he sort of is enabling that portrait. And this is something that takes my breath away. This spirit of this man, he is sitting for this portrait and he is presenting himself you know, sort of back to Stanley Brown, in the sense of projecting yourself forward, that I am trying to find a way to see him. And it's actually, I don't have the ability to see him. And and so when I go to that, I feel my loss to know this this person who's just existing as an African man in the court um, before the industrialization of, of slavery, what, that we can't, you know, to get to that space of. To, to how to see him again, and I think that that is work that will still is something we need to do together. That we will, you know, people like you know librarians and historians and different kinds of practices. This will start to be, you know, people like Anne Lafont, and uh, and in Paris, and and uh, Denise Morel in New York are doing this work. Curators and historians are are do. How do we uncover? what is there for us to uncover you know that Africanist presence that is haunting western painting this is exciting to me and work that I think is is the work of our time
0: And lastly what is art for?
1: It's for being together at this threshold when you look at something you create your tribe with you of looking, people who are looking and seeing and, and I think it's emancipatory and it's it's a kind of projection forward towards something else.
0: Ellen, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you, Van. Thank you.
0: Ellen's exhibition, Ecstatic Draft of Fishes, is at Hauser and Wirth in London until the 31st of July. She mentioned that she's installing in Arnhem in the Netherlands, and that's for the quadrennial exhibition Sonspec. The artistic director is Bonaventure So de Dikung, and his exhibition, in which Ellen is showing work in the watery ecstatic series, is called Force Times Distance on Labour and its sonic ecologies. It runs from the 2nd of July until the 29th of August at various locations in Arnhem. Ellen's also in the group show Mirrors and Windows at the Filara Collection in Dusseldorf until the 3rd of October, and she's in a show at the Andries Eich Gallery in Amsterdam called On Paper until the 31st of July. Ellen's major work Deluxe, one of the works featuring a grid of found and transformed magazine pages, is on view at The Broad in Los Angeles as part of the group exhibition Invisible Sun. That's also until the 3rd of October. And another group show featuring Ellen's work New Time, Art and Feminisms in the 21st Century opens at the Berkeley Art Museum and Pacific Film Archive at the University of Berkeley in California from the 28th of August until the 30th of January next year. And that's it for this episode. Please subscribe to A Brush With wherever you're listening and do give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. And do also subscribe to our other podcast, The Week in Art, a deep dive into the latest big art world stories, the top shows and the key issues. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. Production, editing and sound design on A Brush With are by David Clack and the producers of the art newspaper podcasts are Julia Mihalska and Amy Dawson. Thanks to Henrietta Bentel, Daniela Hathaway and Kabir Jalla. Huge thanks to Ellen Gallagher and to Edgar Klein. Join us on Friday for the last episode of the present season of The Week in Art and we'll be back at the end of July with more episodes of A Brush With. Bye for now. This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects. Download Bloomberg Connects today and discover cultural institutions on demand.